This is the Instrumental Music Curriculum Podcast from Valdosta State University. I am Dr. Benjamin Harper. On the pod today, it's syllabus and introduction day. We will review the expectations for this class, talk about forced change in the era of coronavirus, and talk with Melissa Smith about getting ready for your student teaching experience. Before we begin, I would be remiss to mention that if you are not registered for MUE 7700 at Valdosta State University, you too could give us your tuition dollars. This class is part of our Master of Arts in Teaching program designed for students seeking teacher certification. This degree program is moving entirely online and it includes opportunities to complete observation hours and student teaching within the span of four consecutive semesters, which will then allow you to apply for teaching certification in your state. More information can be found on our website, valdosta.edu music. As with any class, we do need to go over the syllabus highlights. For the students currently in the class, you'll find this in the course materials section in the files in Microsoft Teams. As usual with me, you're free to email me or call anytime, but you can expect a response within one business day. So that does mean if you email me on Friday or Saturday or Sunday, your response will come on Monday. But any other day, I'll get back with you within 24 hours. And you all know that I like email because if we have a face-to-face conversation, I'm ass- I, I will positively forget it. So email is the best way. I just need to read. That's how I learn and that's how I remember things. We are doing all of these office hours over Microsoft Teams. So you can send me a chat or we can meet up and do a video conference, whatever works best for you. But in the interest of social distancing and reducing our contact with each other, Microsoft Teams is just the way to go. We are going to take a holistic view of instrumental music curriculum. I often find that uh, instrumental music teachers, especially at the secondary levels, focus on the activity of being in band or the activity of being in orchestra and really don't focus on total music education of the student. So this course is designed to develop your knowledge in providing effective instruction in instrumental music classrooms, including the curriculum design, lesson planning and execution, and development of professional skills. There are a couple of required texts that you will need to have because there is associated reading at the end of each podcast. You will need the Shelley J. Gow Developing the Complete Band Program. You also need the Shelley J. Gow Tuning for Wind Instruments and the Scott Rush Habits of a Successful Band Director. At the end of each episode, in addition to the readings, I may give you some additional tasks to complete by the end of the week on Sunday nights at 11.59 p.m. Episodes are released every Monday, and you have until the following Sunday at 11.59 p.m. to listen to the episode, complete the readings, and finish up any tasks that are associated with this episode. Now, occasionally, some of these tasks are going to be a little bit larger in scope, so I will let you know which tasks you will have additional time to complete. But just know that the default due date is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Some will be due in Teams, and some will be due via email. Email. Some will be a video conference. And, and because of the way that this class is presented, I am going to be a little bit more available for you than I am for any of my other in-person classes. You'll have opportunities to chat 
or to a video conference over the weekend as long as we set up appointments. This is a useful final project because basically what you're doing is you're kind of designing your curriculum the day you step out into the schools. And you're also going through the process of planning a curriculum cycle and you're thinking about long-term planning. So you're thinking on multiple level levels here. You're thinking long-term, medium-term, and short-term. Your final project is something that you're going to be able to use on day one when you step out as a professional teacher. Some of the assignments and tasks in this class will be geared towards completing this project, which includes a five-year repertoire plan for grades seven through 12, and you're going to identify core repertoire to be performed cyclically. You'll have a rehearsal plan for one of the performance cycles, just a general outline of how the next six to eight weeks will look within that performance cycle. And then you're going to design and write five progressive lesson plans for Monday through Friday, basically a full week of class within that, a chosen performance cycle. Okay, now that we've gotten all of the formalities out of the way, let's get to it. This episode and the next few are introductory. We are working chronologically forward as you prepare to become professional teachers. And this is a really unique time to be a teacher because, uh, you know, here's an example. I spoke to a friend just a couple days ago and she said, man, I've been teaching for 20 years and I feel like a first year teacher all over again. We are all reinventing ourselves right now. My goal was to shift the way I thought about how to deliver content for you in a way that met you where you were. I hate PowerPoints and I hate video lectures. I do not like Zoom meetings. And I have been thinking for the last five months about what education should look like and how it is not the same as what education currently is. So I did my best to force change upon myself. There's a quote that I'm going to summarize here by Milton Friedman. There is enormous inertia, a tyranny of the status quo in private and especially governmental arrangements. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. Wow, what a great quote for our times. We are being forced to change daily because it is necessary. We have no other options. But change can be quite jarring. What do we do when change is forced upon you? Psychology Today has a really great article about here are nine things that you can do when change is forced upon you. Here are the nine things, and I'm going to link this for you in Teams in the show notes. 
First of all, you need to remember to rest and relax. I think one of the most important things next to healthy eating and exercise that we can do for ourselves as human beings is to make sure that we get enough rest and that we get enough mental decompression time. That's not necessarily just sitting around in front of the TV. It may be doing other things that we enjoy doing that give us life and that recharge us for the next day. We also need to grieve what has been lost. For me, I have really been grieving the rehearsal process and how that has changed immensely. This last week was our first rehearsals with Wind Ensemble in more than five months, and everybody is spread out. Everybody's wearing masks. It's really hard to... um, to see each other and it's really hard to hear each other but we're making it work but I am still sad on the inside about it but I'm still trying to lean on the people that I love for support and I let everybody know that I love man I'm so unhappy about this situation but I'm really doing my best to assess and assimilate uh, everything that I'm learning and new information that is coming at me I try to find time to meditate and reflect upon what is working, what isn't working, what I would like things to be in the current circumstances. And I, once I determine the goals, I, my goals, I, I focus on those and decide how am I going to re- go from point A to point B. I don't forget to count my blessings. What are the things that I am thankful for every single day? And every day at at the top of the list, for those of you that know me, you're unsurprised here, but my dogs, I'm just so thankful to have them in my lives, even though they are the most irritating thing in my life some days. I also try to keep a positive attitude. I'm not a particularly positive person. Uh, Part of my core being is expecting the worst, so that way when the best happens, I am pleasantly surprised. And I also try to live in the now, which is against everything, uh, every part of my being is against this. I always try to live in what could be, what will be far down the road and how am I going to get from where I am now to where we're going. But living in the now is the only way to operate most days in this age. Things are changing on a daily basis. And, you know, part of me is expecting that Valdosta State will go from face-to-face classes to completely online at a moment's notice. And, And that's really hard to plan for the the coming days or the coming weeks. And so I try to live in the now and try to meet my students today where they are. What do they need? And that has also forced me to take a different attitude. One of the things that we can control on a daily basis is our attitude and how we approach the challenges ahead. And so I try to choose a positive, kind, respectful and honest attitude with my students so that they feel safe knowing that at least in me there's going to be stability every time that we meet together. Change is inevitable. Change is constant. Change is what you find underneath seat cushions. (laughs) What it really does is it forces us to adapt. We do this all the time in small ways without thinking about, about it. For example, you get new software for your computer and you have to learn some new commands. The more you adapt to smaller changes, the easier it is to handle the big ones. 
Because of all this change, skills such as questioning, analysis, innovation, and creativity are becoming increasingly important in the workplace, as will a new one called change agility. Remember that, the skill called change agility which is defined as an individual's ability to predict and adapt to change. Learning these skills now will prepare you for the future and reduce your fear of change. Change is coming at you from many directions. Coronavirus is an existential threat to everybody right now. And it's out of everybody's control with the exception of wearing masks, washing our hands, and keeping our distance. Your coming life transition from student to, for the very first time in your life, you are becoming a professional. And you have elements within that transition that are within your control. What you do now sets you up for success later. Mrs. Smith was my mentor teacher when I student taught, and she is someone who I count among my loudest supporters, absolute best of friends, and she's one of my biggest influences. We don't talk often enough, but she is someone who has had a big influence on my life and still looms pretty large inside my head. When I was in my first year teaching, I called Mrs. Smith every single day after rehearsal. Sometimes we spoke multiple times a day, and she even blocked time in her schedule for me, even though I was not one of her students. She actually turned students away at 9 o'clock every day because she knew Mr. Harper would be calling. She shaped the way I think about music education today. Today, Mrs. Smith teaches music in the Lawrence Public Schools in Lawrence, Kansas. She teaches band and orchestra, has two teenage children of her own, and is the guard instructor for the Marching Jayhawks at the University of Kansas. When I met her, she was the director of bands at Boone High School in Boone, Iowa. Mrs. Smith, thanks for being on my pod. I am so happy to be here, Dr. Harper. You're a busy person, and I'm glad you took the time out of your schedule for me. I would do anything for you. Not anything. anything. <laughs> Not anything. <laughs> All right. We're going to dive right in. Question number one, share with us your, your teaching experience. How did you get to where you are now, and what was your path in life? Great question. I've had a variety of teaching opportunities in my 20 years of education. I began my career in Highland, Illinois as director of bands, and then I had the honor of accepting the director of orchestras and assistant band directors position at my alma mater in Danville, Illinois. My adventures began when I married my husband and we moved to Waco, Texas. I was then the director of bands in Moody, Texas, of this small 2A school for two years prior to our move to Ames, Iowa, where I became the director of bands at Boone High School in Boone, Iowa for 10 years. I'm currently in my eighth year in Lawrence, Kansas. I'm an assistant director of bands and or of orchestras at West Middle School and the assistant director of bands at Lawrence Free State High School. My teaching day consists of sixth grade strings. Ooh, 
buddy. Sixth grade brass, seventh grade woodwinds and percussion, and then I headed to the high school to work with our high school concert band and symphonic band, marching band, and color guard. I'm also working with the Martin J. Hawks color guard. That was a lot. You do a lot of stuff, and that's only your school stuff. That doesn't even include the out-of-school stuff. What are your extracurricular activities? For school? Um, I mean... For school, sure, but also in life. What I, I mean, are you a real person outside of school? The last time I checked, I was pretty real. I'm pinching and it hurts. Um, no, I have two daughters. I have a junior in high school, and she's into art, and she's driving, which is a, a new, new I remember when she was this tall. That was so yeah. cute. She's so cute. And then our youngest is um, a freshman in high school. She's starting to learn how to drive and she's on a traveling softball team. So our falls and our springs that were busy before band (laughs) have now exploded. And I have a corgi and two Manx cats that don't have tails. That's my life. Yeah. All right. So what's your philosophy of music education? (laughs) Um, (laughs) The question of music It's the question of all questions in music education classes. My philosophy has evolved over the years. If anything, there's a document to keep from your senior year in college. Keep your response to this question. Um, No, seriously, keep it. It's entertaining to read after you've talked for a few years. Really? Uh, Because you look back on it after 15 years and you, what was I thinking? I know. But who knew that I really didn't know as much as I thought I did? Um, At this time in my career, and what I've experienced over the past year tossed into the virtual world, my philosophy is quite simple. I want to give the students experiences and opportunities to become lifelong learners, participants, and to have an appreciation for the fine arts. Not all of our kids share our passions at the same magnitude that we have for our field of study, and that's okay. Um, We need participants of all levels of experience and expertise. That is the beauty of our field. Notice what Mrs. Smith said. Not everyone shares our passion, and that's okay. That was a really tough lesson. I took, I'm not sure I totally understand that lesson. I don't think I've learned it all the way. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but the kids, we're giving them experiences and opportunities. So while I would love for them all to become music education majors, they're not going to do that. So if I have a student that I've had for since middle school quit, you know, their sophomore year because they have a class conflict with um, another class that they, is their field of study and their interest, which happens, it's hard to let them go. But my first question usually is, what fine arts class are you going to take or keep? So are you going to stay in choir? Are you going to stay in your art class? Um, and sometimes that's a yes, and sometimes that a no. But I'll follow up with just always keep the arts in your life somehow. Um, and you'll never know if they come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's good that we encourage them to be creative, but we can't make a horse drink the water once we've led them to the trough. It's one of those things. That was a really good Iowa phrase there, buddy. Listen, I am a true farm kid. That's a lie. I never, (laughs) I only went to a farm to do the petting zoo thing, (laughs) but I taught at a high school that was next to a farm. Surrounded with cornfields. <laughs> Literally surrounded by cornfields. <laughs> Gosh. Life lessons there, buddy. You learned some life lessons there. Listen, I did not know that FFA week was a big week until <laughs> the, the, the FFA students were bringing their parents multi-million dollar tractors to school 
across the band field during rehearsal and parking them out on the highway. Didn't know. In Texas, in Texas they had the FFA barn on site where the kids could keep their animals so that they can have access to them during the school day. You had an FFA barn? Mm -hmm. They kept their animals there and they had like shows and everything. They would get out of classes do with the bulls and the pigs and hogs. Mm -hmm. It was a big thing. Oh my God. That we edit this out. That's a real life education right there. Oh my God. It was for me and I thought I'm used to us. I didn't really know anything. Oh gosh. Okay. Uh, back on track here. Let's bring it around. Uh, Tell us about your student teaching experience. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, I thought student taught at Wabonzi Valley High School and Hill Middle School in Naperville, Illinois with Chips Daly. Um, while student while I was student teaching, I was part of the part of a study that evaluated pre-conference lessons, um, lessons taught and post-conferences with my co-ops. So that means that any time that I was in front of kids, that I had to be recorded and then I had to analyze those recordings and then go over those recordings with Mr. Staley, and then also with my um, Dr. Grant at the University of Illinois. Um, Mr. Staley was an excellent musician and teacher. He was tough and I was fearful of making mistakes, so I worked extra hard to be prepared in both score study, lesson planning, and organization. While at the high school, I reorganized their music library database. Um, the University of Illinois professors provided us opportunities throughout our undergraduate courses to fully prepare us for stresses and expectations of student teaching. I had a positive experience. However, I also put in a lot of extra time attending events just to learn procedures and simple aspects of last minute problem solving. I cannot express enough to you the importance of just offering to assist local directors for free just to have the experience of observations, hands-on opportunities, or to even learn how to do something. There is education and negative experiences. Yeah. I think one thing I do want to point out, because we talk about this with our students quite a bit, and I don't know that they necessarily realize it, but you said organization and everything. And basically, you're doing everything you can to learn the ins and outs of everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's Are you still organized? Mm, yes. <laughs> it's all a facade for me. I, I just got called an overachiever by an administrator the other day. Oh no. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm I mean like, that's good, but I didn't I didn't like that word, but I teach at two schools and my primary school is the high school. Um, but I spend more hours at the middle school. And with everything that's going on, I felt that I should be doing both PDs. So there are things that the High school level, but the middle school level doesn't. Oh, hang on. PD, for those that are uninitiated, professional development. Um, so there are just aspects of the middle school that they have professional development on topics that not, not necessarily happen at the high school. So I've been double PDing. <laughs> and so, like, you're just an overachiever. I'm like, nah, I just want to know what's going on in buildings. <laughs> Remember that time in Iowa when everybody was doing the same thing and it made sense and we all knew what was going on um, wow. authentic intellectual work you all there's new names do for that now. Huh? <laughs> there's new names for that now like pbis and yeah pbl well i think i was still doing authentic intellectual work yeah it's just you know how it works it just names kind of rotate around it's the same thing on a cycle yeah, yeah. yeah. uh how many student teachers have you taught 
I have had the pleasure of working with five wonderful music educators. Can you name them all? Name them. I had James and what was the other one? Who's James? He's in Texas. I had two in Texas. One is he's gotten out of actually teaching and he's gone into engineering and computer. The other one is a musician, um, music minister. I, I should remember. It's been years. Um, and then I had like Ben Harper, mm. Dr. Ben Harper mm. and Bernie and um, Kate. Katie. Yeah. Is Katie still teaching? Uh, she's amazing. Yes, she yes. is. Yeah. She's, uh, yeah I yeah. love her. And Bernie, uh, he did teach in Iowa to start. Yes. Or did he go straight to Las Vegas? Iowa, then Las Vegas, and then he's in Chicago. Yeah, he's, he's in, in, in Chicago. Chicago. Now he's at another school now. Yeah, he's at, is he in the city or is he in suburbs? He's now in a suburb. Okay. Yeah. He's doing really great. He's doing really great. Everyone's doing really great. I'm happy for everyone. I saw him at Midwest. He was taller than I remember, and he was wearing pointier boots than I thought he should. He had a little Las Vegas in him. <laughs> Uh, okay. So what are you, when you have student teachers as the mentor teacher, what are you putting on the line when you invite a student teacher into the classroom? I am not quite sure how to answer this question as I feel that my, our, our classroom is an educational setting for all. You will have those co- cooperative teachers or directors that like to micromanage. And a lot might say we are putting our programs on the line but I don't agree with that philosophy. Um, Co-teachers share our time with student teachers. The best environment is where the student teacher and the co-op work hand in hand. And then there is a gradual handoff with guidance behind the scenes. In my, my opinion, I feel that we learn from our mistakes made and successes had. If I, as a co-op teacher, did not allow student teachers to experience shortfalls and then try to problem solve or build their bag of tricks, then I have failed as a cooperative teacher. Um, you will not know everything when you graduate, no matter what you are thinking right now. And it is okay. I'm still learning. You kind of are putting the education of your students on the line, but I think high school students especially are smart enough to know that student teachers are there to learn as well. I think it's how your cooperative teacher sets up the classroom. I think that really matters a lot because I've seen cooperative teachers not set that up too well. And then the student teachers aren't respected. So I like to set up a classroom where the students know that you're the professional in the room if I'm not there. Um, So I think that it has to be hand in hand in order for it to work out for both parties. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about the time. I think it was the first week in your classroom. I think it was my first day. I'm fairly certain we were supposed to observe for two weeks, but I'm pretty sure you handed me some music scores. I exaggerate, I'm sure, but I'm sure it's not exaggerated by much, but it seemed like it was 15 minutes before the, what you had two bands, didn't you? You had a 910 and an 1112. Mm-hmm. It was before the 910 or the 1112. I forget which. I remember Amparito Roca was on that concert. Mm-hmm. He handed me a whole bunch of scores and said, okay, you're rehearsing today. Good luck. That was so mean of me. It was, no, but it was so you because, it, you know, you said earlier about adaptation, quick change and being able to just pivot on a dime. And 
I mean, that's, that's like one of the core learnings I got from you. It took me about five or 10 years to actually be able to do that. But intellectually, I knew what I was supposed to do. I think I have like a, I have a adverse, um, not adverse. I have, um, it's nice to have a husband that works at the collegiate level because you tend to learn about the students that you're going to get beforehand and what their pitfalls are and what they're really good at. So if I focus on everything that you do well, then I'm going to do you a disservice. So let's work on our weaknesses while you're in a safe environment and let's build that up and um, get that going so that when you're out on your own, you can take what you already know and you've, and you've worked on some of those weaknesses to make you better as a first year teacher. And you were really strong. You were a really strong student coming in. So I knew that I could push you a bit more than others. <laughs> and I had fun with that. I know you did. I know. I was, I also just thought, cause you brought up Dr. Smith. Uh, he, the first observation he did of me, cause he was my supervising professor. He just did, well, he did the observations. Dr. Munson was the supervisor officially. Uh, so he did the observations and I forgot to tune the band. I was so nervous. And that is literally the only thing I heard about for the next four weeks of my life. And to this day, he still asks, do you tune your band? <laughs> just at Midwest, you know, just to check in. It was a lesson learned. It was a lesson learned. And by God, now... Yesterday in rehearsal, we tuned four times in 30 minutes. So take that, Dr. Smith. Oh, I'll pass that on. No, make him listen to the podcast. <laughs> He'll be like, oh, no, those two together. How did you guys even get through a sentence? Uh-huh. It's a bad situation. Uh, so, all right. So when they do come into the classroom or when I came into the classroom, what were your expectations for me or what are your expectations for all student teachers? You know, I was really stumped by that because I don't ever think I gave you a list. That's the thing. It was never a list. I think it was a look though. <laughs> that one. Uh, I put, I, so I wrote this out. So I said, I have not really ever laid out an expectation plan for my students. Did I, Dr. Harper? No, nope, not once. I think the universities usually do a pretty good job about giving you like a packet, like a booklet, like 500 pages of this is what you need to do. And I think sometimes that's overwhelming. So my basics are, my basic go-tos are early is on time, on time is late, and late is when we need to have a conversation. Uh, Always be overly prepared. Try to foresee problems before they occur. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, it is okay not to know something. It is okay to make mistakes. Dress appropriately. Set boundaries. The students are not your friends. Always be professional. Don't be afraid to let those kids see your personality. And while it is not your program, always strive to work towards your goals and developing great performances. The kids will respond because eventually you'll have your own program. I think those are the basic ones. Yeah. I think the biggest one that I remember from you is be professional and dress appropriately. And, it, and I bring that up not because I wore jeans and ragged t-shirts to your classrooms, but one of the lessons I think I learned from you was you have to, we are so, when we student taught, we were so close in age to them. And we think, by God, five years 
for most of us or six years or whatever, really at that age is not a big age, age gap. And for us, it's not necessarily a huge issue, but for, for the high school students, they have brothers and sisters who are that age. And so they are happy to be chummy, chummy with us. And so what I found, I think you suggested this because I was complaining about this my first or second year. You said, well, are you wearing a shirt and tie to work every day? No. (laughs) Do you, I think you even suggested, are you able to grow a beard? Yeah. Well, maybe you should have a little bit of it. Like these are things that high school students don't do. They don't dress in shirt and ties and they don't grow beards. Well, some of them. They don't even dress in polo shirts. So even if you wore a school polo shirt or a khakis, you know, something to set yourself slightly apart from them. Because when I was student teaching, I was being asked for hall passes. And even when my first job, I had a teacher, a veteran teacher, it's like, where's your hall pass? I'm like, I'm a teacher here. (laughs) And I was dressed appropriately. I just looked, I mean, that was a time where kids actually did dress and look nice for school. Um, So it was just, it was a transition trying when you're so young and you don't think of yourself as young, but you are um, just to kind of set yourself a little bit slightly above the kids. This is just talking generically day one. What do student teachers need when they step in the classroom? Not necessarily yours, but anyone, what are the top maybe five or six skills that they would need? I address this as a student teacher. So I said day one sets the mood for your time in the classroom. Your co-op helps set that mood too. Make sure that you understand what your cooperating teacher expects for the first day. Do they want you taking notes? Do they want you making observations? Are you they do they want you to walk around the room? Do they want you to play your secondary instrument or sing in a section? Ask. Be very good about communicating with your cooperating teacher. Like what are your expectations? Beforehand. Like, uh-huh. The day you find out who you're going to go teach with. Yeah, that's it's it's you've got to start building that relationship as soon as you know where you're going. Um, and professional, I didn't address this at all. Oh, here's a side parking lot moment. Um, know how to write an email and don't go, hey, um, actually, Mr. or Mrs. or Miss or Doctor. It really does matter. And you set the tone in the first email, kind of like your first day of school. Kids actually like it when you participate with them. So like you sat and you played trumpet with our kids and like, wow, Dr. Harper plays trumpet. And they were pretty impressed. So, you know, see what, see what the limitations are with your co-op and what you can do. I said, um, smile, be personable, welcome students as they enter the room, build relationships, building relationships begin on day one. If you don't build relationships and make contacts starting on day one, you will lose them. And if you don't know your, their names, like within hours, they will start calling you. What's my name? And then you go, you, you play oboe, but give me a hint. Give me a whole week to learn everyone's names. You, you know? like softball, you play trumpet, but your name. Starts with an M. <laughs> Uh, that, that is one thing that I have my student teachers do is I say, when I come in for the first observation and I usually come in two or three weeks in advance after they've had a little time to acclimate, 
But I say, you must know every student's name. And if that means you have flashcards or you have name plates out on the music stands to help you learn, whatever it takes, learn their names. At the door, when you greet, we at Humboldt, we used to greet students as they came in the door every single morning. When that bell rang for them to get to class, we were out the door. And this was pre-corona, so we could shake their hands. And uh, we also asked, Melissa, how are you today? And Melissa would say, fine. And she'd try to keep walking, wouldn't let go of their hands. No, no, no. How are you doing today? I really want to know. Well, I'm actually really great today, Mr. Harper. I mean, but, it, but like, you know, high school students have a default response when they're asked, how are you today? Fine. It, it's like they don't even think about how they actually are. But when you, when you make them tell you, actually how they are, they tell you, and that's relationship building right there, because then they know you care. I had a great icebreaker, like a guard member shared with me, like the best icebreaker ever. Okay. I'm all ears. She did it in her business class. If you could be a kitchen appliance or tool, what would you be and why? See, you're having to think. <laughs> be anything in your kitchen. Uh, you know what I would be right now, only because it's my favorite kitchen appliance now, is um, my electric tea kettle. A, because it's efficient. B, it was cost effective. And C, it gets me to the caffeine faster. I mean, I only say that because it's my most used kitchen appliance. And I could do without, I could not do without like a knife, a cutting knife, or silverware or something. Only one. Only one, Only one today. I know, but the today is the electric tea kettle, I think. Just because it's to efficient, me, it does one job, and it does it well. Today, I'm a spice rack. Because you can never have enough spice. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that I was going to meet Dr. Harper today, and I have not seen you in a long time. I'm like, I got to spice no. it up today. Question number eight. Here we go. Uh, what should a soon-to-be student teacher be doing in their last semester to prepare for student teaching? I actually typed this pretty detailed, so I'm just going to read from it. So if I sound like a, I don't know, I don't even have an analogy. I'm just going to go. I said, first of all, there is never enough time in your day to accomplish everything. Focus on a simple goal setting and time management. It can be overwhelming. Not even lying. It's going to be overwhelming. So just prepare yourself. Keep a notepad by your bed or for you tech savvy students, your iPhone notepad and write down questions that keep you up at night. We have all been there. A question pops into your head. We tell ourselves that we will remember it and then poof, we forget it. By simply writing it down, you'll remember it for later, get it out of your head and give you peace for at least one night. <laughs> Take these questions to Dr. Harper. He knows everything. Or to professor that you can... <laughs> Give you great advice. Make a folder on your computer with various tabs and just drop that info in for future reference. You will use it at some point during student teaching or your first year of school or first year of teaching. Another thing is purchasing appropriate clothing for teaching students, high school and middle school students. It really does matter. Ladies, jeggings is not appropriate no matter how long your shirt is. The three B's for all, no bust, belly, or butt. 
I've had to tell student teachers to go home and change clothes if they were not addressed if they were not dressed appropriately for public education spaces. Great for college, but not for middle school and high school students. Shoes matter. Spend the money. Not even kidding about that. If you know where you will be seeing teaching, begin communication with your cooperative teaching ASAP. And stress will happen, but breathe air is free. I think that's a I think those are all really great tips. I do appreciate the apparel comment uh, because clothes are not cheap. Even if you get stuff on sales at on sale at Kohl's, it is not, it, it's still going to cost you some money. And so it's good to stagger that out over multiple months. Can I also say that men, you need to tuck in your shirts and wear belts. Men can, should not be wearing white socks with brown shoes nor black shoes. Simple as it. It's like if your uniform is black, you'll tell your kids wear black socks with your black shoes. Or if your uniform is white, like ours are, you'll say wear white socks with your white shoes and your white band pants, like for marching band. But still to this day, when I tell the kids where you need white socks, they will wear black socks with their white marching shoes. And then I have to like charge them for socks. And then for concert season, they will wear white socks with their black March or with, with their black pants. Are you and sure so your it's students like, aren't colorblind? I don't know. It's like reverse psychology. I like I point it out all the time, and they laugh. They think it's funny, but then there will be that one kid that shows up for concerts with their white socks. I'm like, dude, seriously. <laughs> well, and also you said um, communicate with your cooperating teacher as soon as humanly possible, mm-hmm. uh, or if you kind of know where you're going, because here we can put in requests and um, because I put in a request for you. I didn't officially know until you told me. Yeah, I did. I because Katie said, go teach with Mrs. Smith. She is literally the best. So that's what I I said. This is the only one I want to go teach with. And I actually had a meeting with Dr. Munson about that. I'm honored. So the early communication is, better. And then I would also suggest if you can get into the classroom to start observing early and and use that as observation hours, or even in December when we're in finals or out of finals and schools are still in session, get your tail in there. Even if you can only make the trip one day, do it. Even if you're virtual, ask if you can be a part of the Zoom as just a silent voice, just to see how things are operating ahead of time. It's helpful. Very, very helpful. Yeah. I would sit on Dr. Harper's Zoom because I, I need to be educated. Well, I'm being educated right now by you in this Zoom. Oh, we're such a team and I miss it. I oh miss my us. God. We would be unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, number nine. What should student teachers expect to get out of their experience? You will learn what works and what does not work. You will learn how to do things or discover new ways of approaching curriculum, professional development, planning events, and the list goes on. (laughs) Hopefully, you will have built that bag of tricks so that when you have your own classroom, you will begin with confidence and a solid knowledge of how to begin planning for your students. Yeah. The bag of tricks thing is a beg, borrow, and steal. Cross out someone else's name and slap your name on top. Claim it as your own. I call it sharing. 
Sharing is caring. I call it stealing because I put my name on top of it. I mean, literally, you've got, let's think, let's talk about middle school. Let's just go there. Okay. And you're teaching them how to, um, you, you, you've got those kids that just can't memorize the lines and spaces. And you've got to find different ways to teach that. I just learned, it's not appropriate. I just learned in, um, uh, uh, <laughs> a different acronym for the lines and spaces, but oh. I'm not going to share that here. Will you share it with me after? <laughs> I can do it now. Um, it's for the treble cloth. Um, somebody posted it in the band director page. And we've learned it as every good boy does fine or every good boy deserves fudge or lots of different things. This is engaged gas mask before dad farts. Oh my gosh, that's a good one. No middle school boy will ever forget the lines again. <laughs> they will remember that till the day they die. Yeah. And then also there's like the music theory.net. And so you've got, you just got to find the different tricks to try oh, to get kids to. Yeah. And that's just being a teacher and trying to reach every student. And I don't know what they call it now or if they still use this word, but that's just differentiating instruction. Oh, it's the same. It's the oh, same. Oh, we still use that word. I don't know. I feel, Mrs. Smith, I haven't taught for seven or eight years now. You're teaching now, Ben. I mean, I mean, high school. So I'm not really. As, in that space. I'm not in that headspace where I'm connected to the whatever the current lingo happens to be. You know, you know what I'm going to say to that, right? Don't be that Ivy League teacher that doesn't make connections. Don't be that. Stay grounded in public education. Well, that's why we're doing this. You keep me grounded for sure, whether or not I like it. Um, in my opinion, you get out of it what you put into it. If you're showing up from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and not putting much effort into it, you will not be prepared. If you're showing up at 7.30 a.m. and staying until your co-op gets done, then you might get more from the experience. Planning does not happen during the day. Teachers never stop working. Dive in and go deep. Yeah. Do it all. Do it all. Yeah. Uh, how do, uh, what do you see as the most common pitfalls for student teachers? Like what are just the common things that every student teacher makes the, the same mistakes that they all make and, and how can they avoid those mistakes? I'm afraid of making mistakes, not being themselves, not being open for constructive criticism arrogant, they know everything, not open to try something new because when I was in high school, we did it this way mentality, not being prepared and giving up. That annoys me the most is when they just give up. Um, so those are a lot of the five that I've had. They, they didn't fall on a lot of those, but I've seen a lot of that happen with other student teachers. Um, but I'm not saying that I've not, that's not happened before. So how to avoid the pitfalls, approach each new day with an open mind to learn something new. Be yourself, ask lots of questions, take lots of notes, keep a journal of the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. No matter what, push through adversity and celebrate the small victories. Always be prepared, overly prepared. And while you're a student teacher, when you are in the classroom, you are preparing yourself for your future, so be that person. But I'm gonna go back to the, um, the journal part, part of 
what I had to do when I student taught was I had to keep a daily journal and we didn't have computers. We had like typewriters, but I remember taking, doing the daily journal and I hated it at the time because by the time I got home, I was so tired. Like I used to wear contacts and it's like where your eyes dry out and you can't get the contact out. That's, I mean, I was just exhausted, but I remember doing these journals. And then when I finished student teaching, I kind of went back and I read them and, and there, are, there is, good that happens in a day. And if I've been, I could have written down, wow, I've been working with this kid on just trying to remember that this is an inharmonic and they remembered it <laughs> today. Yay! You know, it's just, that's an accomplishment because if you have a student that just struggles and that light, but like light bulb finally turns on and you've reached them, it was good to go back and say, yeah, I did have good things happen while a student taught. It wasn't all that bad. You know, you're going to have, you're going to have some successes and you need to document your successes, but you also need to document like what maybe went wrong and then analyze that. Like, okay, so that went wrong. How could I have approached it differently and then moved on from there? And so I also want to add, you're going to make a mistake. It is not if it is when you make a mistake, you analyze what went wrong and then come up with five different ways of approaching or teaching or handling that situation differently first, and then discuss it with your cooperating teacher. Don't be afraid to reach out to your college mentors. Dr. Harper is awesome. He has a few first-year stories that he could share that he's learned from, and then, but then look where, where he is today. So you've come a long way, and I'm pretty proud of you. I had nothing to do with your success, but I'm pretty proud of you. <laughs> I would suggest you had a lot to do with it because that was, you know, student teaching is a formative experience, even though we are adults when we get to student teaching, it's formative because we're just putting ourselves, like we're exposing ourselves. You walk into the classroom, you were not prepared for this by your college education when you step in on day one. You know the note names, you know the fingerings on all the instruments, you know the embouchures, you know the repertoire, but they don't prepare you for whatever. I, I don't even know how to describe what that intangible thing is, but a lot of it is through experience. And, and I just remember through the entire thing for four months solid, just being totally feeling vulnerable and like I was making mistakes left and right. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to be a successful teacher. And it, but, but my, but Mrs. Smith was able to, she lifted me up every day. We talked about all those things. I don't think I kept a journal and I wish I would have, because then I could have, after, you know, a week or two in student teaching or a month or two months, I could have looked back and seen the growth because you're in there in it, as we say, in the weeds. And it's hard to see the forest from the trees when you're in the middle of your journey. It's the socially emotional part that they don't prepare you for in college. That's it. Yeah. Like you, you're, you're technically, you're there. You can study a score. You can teach a rhythm. You can, you can do the basics and you can go a little bit deeper, but it's the social and emotional connection of teaching that they can't prepare you for because in college you're going to school and you're just learning the trade. Um, but then now you're like working with like, real humans <laughs> and you're 
And that they're coming into class with like, and you know, middle school, I love you. I hate you. I love you. I hate you. You never know what, how they're going to feel for that day. And so you're going through those emotional roller coasters and then having to deal with they're having their problems that they're bringing into the classroom, but you, you are that solid person. And in college, you just worry about yourself. Now, all of a sudden you've got like a hundred little beings. But it's exactly right. Like you are that stable adult. And for some, for some students, you're the only stable adult in their lives. And so they're just going to pour it all out to you. So you, you not only carry your day-to-day emotional baggage, what's happening in your life, but you also carry theirs. But you leave yours at the door. Yeah, I leave mine at the door. But the problem is when I go home at night, I still to this day have a hard time separating their emotional baggage from me. I bring it with me home. And it's still... There are some students, even in the last couple of years, that keep me up late at night. Man, I hope they're okay. I hope I see them tomorrow. I want to know how they're doing. I don't know how they're going to be able to navigate this issue in their life, and I wish I could be helpful. And sometimes the most helpful thing you can do is just be a stable, positive, caring adult who's willing to listen. And and I know coronavirus, but also professionally, we are not supposed to touch students, but hugs do count sometimes and they can go a long way to to providing support for a student just showing interest in them showing interest telling them that you love them and that hey it'll all be okay and i want to know what's going on in your life truly those simple icebreaker questions that they it's it's just one way to get into their heads a little bit and sometimes their answers are pretty pretty brilliant kids oh yeah and I'm just like, man, I would have never thought of that. But. but but their answers, like the kitchen appliance or utensil question, it'll reveal how they answer the question, not necessarily what they pick, but why, how they explain that choice. It, it'll be brilliant, first of all. Second, it really is a window into their personality. It is because who asked that question? I'm like, nobody. I've, I've never been asked that. I mean, think about all the marching band stuff I've been to and Tim Lotz and Heiser and Scott Lang. Nobody's asked me about kitchen appliance. No. I'm going to be thinking about that one for days. Send you a text when I get it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Hey. I'm a refrigerator today. Okay, so last question from um, my list, and I think this one for me was also one that I remember very strongly during those four months was, how might a student teacher's schedule or routines different from when they're a full-time college student? I actually asked this question to Dr. Smith, and he had the same response I did when I first, like, read it. I laughed. Oh, yeah? (laughs) I was like, I'm like, this question just makes me laugh. Um, you will n- experience a tired like no other. Oh gosh, it's not hilarious. like you go out at 10 p.m. and get to bed at 4 a.m. tired. It isn't, oh my gosh, I never I could I never knew I could feel like a wet noodle out of a hot pan tired. <laughs> <laughs> You're literally on your feet leading all day long, except for maybe your 20-minute lunch period. And even at that, you might be traveling. Seriously, spend the money on those great supportive lightweight shoes, Dansko's, Rockport's, Merrill's, Keen's, you know, the things that you're like, oh, I'll never own that pair. Yeah, you will. I'm not even kidding. Seriously, go get those shoes now. They they cost a lot, but in the long run, they will be your best shoe. And if you have really horrible shoes, you'll feel miserable 
by the end of your first day. And no one's going to fault you men for wearing a pair of Merrill, like not hiking boots, but the, the low ankle ones. Cause the boots go up higher on it. No, one's gonna fault you. They, they look, yeah, they actually make some dressier shoes now, but I don't know. Socks make shoes now. And like it, it, you pay for what you get. And when you're a teacher on your feet all day long, mm, biggest investment you can make outside of an instrument is good clothes. Good good clothes. clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Good clothes. <laughs> yeah. Good clothes. Also, the tired thing, not only do you get home and you're just like, okay, assuming you're allowed to leave campus at four o'clock or assuming you do, Mrs. Smith just shook her head no. Uh, you get home, you eat, but then as a student teacher, you probably have enormous amounts of lesson planning you need to do to get ready for the next day. Um, lesson planning. Oh my gosh, do it. So when you first start teaching, you'll hate it. I'm not going to lie. Who likes to do it? Who likes to sit and analyze every single lesson? Well, Dr. Harper, yeah. Okay. So do the detailed lesson plans. And like, let's say you're looking at a score and you're the trumpets measures 10 through 12. They got a rhythm issue. Like find five different ways to teach that rhythm without singing it to them first, because they will want you to sing that rhythm to them. And I, I tell my kids, I'm not singing it to you. We figure it out together, but I'm not singing it to you. So just try to analyze your score, approach it. Not like I, I, I'm, I've just been in college and I know how to do this. Approach it like a middle school kid who's never seen that before and pre-plan all of it out. Does it take a long time to do it? Absolutely. Is it worth it when you're in the middle of the lesson on the podium and you're only given 15 minutes by Dr. Harper to carry out your lesson and you, and you can like, Ooh, that didn't work. And then you have another thing that you can go to to try it. And you have another thing that you go to. So you have like this big detailed plan. And as you become that veteran teacher, you won't have to do that as much. You'll have a block plan. But when you first start out, make those detailed plans. They, they will save your, that's just, it's just a thing for me. You brought up lesson planning. No teacher likes to do it to this day. I do not like doing lessons plan, lesson plans, but you know what I spent two hours doing yesterday, writing lesson plans for next week keeps you on task. It helps you map out. It helps you map out your concerts. Rep. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about this later in the semester here, especially as we start doing rehearsal planning and curriculum cycle planning, but like on a day-to-day basis, especially when I was a young teacher, I needed those lesson plans because yeah, your ears are going to hear a thing and you're going to want to go after that thing. And it wasn't on your lesson plan. And then you dive down that rabbit hole with the students and then you, all right, we solved that issue. Now what? Oh, I have a lesson. Make a recording. You know, record yourself. Like, that's the biggest thing that I learned when I was student taught is like, because I was part of that study, anytime that I was doing a pre-conference, I was recorded. Anytime I was in front of a student, I was recorded. Anytime that I had a post-conference, I was recorded. And just, and, you know, being a guard person and have danced for 15 years, I'm, I'm used to being in front of camera. I don't like seeing myself on camera. That was the hardest thing, even in conducting classes was to watch myself. And to this day, um, I can remember feel sick going into Mr. Wisniewski's conducting class, you know, for post-conferences and, and having to watch my video. Cause I only focused on the negative. I, cause I'm so critical of everything. And he helped me analyze differently. So he already knew that about me that I'm just going to find the negative in everything that I do. And 
it got to a point in conferences and he's like, okay, I want you to find uh, six things that you did really well in this video. And that was hard. <laughs> that was really, really hard for me. And so, and it's still hard for me to this day. <laughs> like, I'll have a concert and Matt will be at it. And I was like, okay, what do I need to fix in my conducting? And he was like, well, it's fine. I'm like, are you sure I'm not hitching on two anymore? And so it's, it's you're just constantly growing. So I think it's really important to record yourself and watch yourself and analyze yourself because, you know, if you can sit through your 20 minute lesson and have a perspective of what the kid sees and time yourself, like how much am I talking? How much am I actually teaching? How much of time, how much time am I wasting? How much time are the kids have their horns to their faces? How long are they singing? How long are they bowing? It really makes a difference. Right. And you can see a lot and learn a lot about how you teach through those recordings. That's the big gotta do it oh gosh they're so pain they're pain i watch i i record myself and i still find it extraordinarily painful to watch but i hope everybody noticed mrs smith who is a more mature musician than i am still is working on her conducting and asking for feedback and that's important because if you want to reduce the time you're no student ever joined band because they wanted to hear someone talk nope nope we joined because we wanted to play this really cool instrument that the fifth grade band director suckered me into playing. Dr. Harper has a lot of stories, but he's I a was great supposed to, Mr. Dickens was supposed what had me convinced, or my mother had me convinced to play horn uh, and went in for my little fifth grade meeting with Mr. Dickens. And he said, well, we need some really good trumpet players. And I think you would be a really good one. And so... I joined because it was, I was going to be good at this instrument and it was a cool instrument. And I didn't, I wasn't there to hear Mr. Dickens talk. Nobody is. And, and so the watching the videos gives you the perspective of the students with the advantage of having a critical eye. We are our own worst critic. Mm-hmm. But you got to be able to find what good you do too. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see progress. Uh, watching conducting videos weeks apart when you're working on fixing a hitch on two or something after a couple of weeks, it just disappears and it's aha progress. And that is good to notice those things and to notice, Oh, we actually did accomplish the thing. Oh, they did better at the thing that we did yesterday because we reviewed it at the start of rehearsal, whatever, find the positives. My students will also be recording every single day they're on the podium and they will be reviewing video with their cooperating teachers. I don't know about every day depends on the schedule, but they'll at least have to write some sort of video reflection like a journal every single day. So speaking of my students, we, are you ready for the lightning round? I'm not editing that out. That gets, I'm going to cut that down and I'm going to copy and paste it into other episodes. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, I, I never realized like how many sound effects I make, except one of the color art for KU color card. She's like, oh, Miss Smith, your, your sound effects are so cool. I'm like, I have sound effects. Have you met Sarah McCoyne at Texas Tech? No. Does she have sound effects too? She is the sound effect queen and you two would get along. You just sit there and talk and and tweaks and you would talk at sound effects and you would just be best of friends. She's, she's, you would know what they're saying. 
Sometimes yeah. I don't have to say anything. I'll be like, yeah, that <laughs> and my kids are like, sometimes yeah. I have to stop and say, yeah, let's have a do over. Cause yeah, mm. mm-hmm. but I'll take that one. The next one's on you. <laughs> yeah. That also reminds me one word that Mrs. Smith does not allow us to say to our students that sucked. Ooh, I hate that word. Mm. I know we're not allowed to say that. Because it doesn't tell them anything. Like even for paperwork, when when you ask kids questions, they'll they'll give you minimal. Like you, so you ask a question and you put why after that. So I always have to say I don't want the word suck on any paper. So if you want to tell me that it's bad, you can say that was really bad. But tell me what measures were really bad, why they were really bad, and what we could do better. So that's enough. That's for another podcast with Dr. Harper. How you get the kids to give you the answers that you want. <laughs> Here's, here's the short answer. It's all about manipulation, but it's what type of manipulation? How do you set them up for success? And, and also, also, um, deeper thinking, deeper yeah. thinking. Yeah, deep, deep thinking, critical thinking, and synthesis of knowledge, depth of knowledge, all that Bloom's taxonomy stuff. But it's also like band is not just musical education. A lot of times it is life skills education but that's what we should do every class yeah we do it we teach life skills don't let me tell you anything different we teach life skills yeah practical life skills too okay lightning round here we go Tony asks, do you have any tips on how to avoid getting overwhelmed in the classroom? He says uh, he's heard stories of teachers uh, getting partway through the year and then second guessing themselves. And I think we've all heard of the teachers getting halfway through the year and then just bailing and saying, nope, this isn't for me. It was too much. So what do we need to do to avoid getting overwhelmed? I'm overwhelmed now and I'm in my 28th year of teaching. Um, we are in a virtual classroom, so everything is due to me. So I guess we are in the same boat. You will come into this environment with much more technology than I began my career with, which was zero. So I think every year as a teacher, we, we learn something new. And if we're not learning, then why are we here? Just I didn't mean that. We should always be learning. Honestly, you can give up and say it's too much. Or you can just buckle up and go for the amazing roller coaster ride. I'm riding it right now, and some days it's invigorating, and others my mind is just shuts down. And I'm wondering why I'm still in education. In my experience, I become overwhelmed when I try to take on too much or I don't narrow my focus. Pick one or two things that you feel you can tackle um, with success, and then you will feel better, and then you move on to the next task. No one ran before they learned how to crawl. That is how I'm approaching my new virtual world. And I think you'll hear that like after five years of teaching, you'll hit a wall and you do. (laughs) I didn't believe I'm like, no, not me. And I did. And I think with me, because I've moved so much and I've had so many experiences, not because I've necessarily wanted to move. It's because my husband's gotten a new job and I've had to move, um, that I've had to adapt a lot to a lot of different situations. Um, I came from a very, very competitive marching program, concert program, my high school band. Um, we played at Middle, Midwest Band Orchestra Clinic. Um, and then my first job, it was competitive. And then I moved back to my high school and taught there and it's still competitive. And we went into WGI and did the, the percussions and the guard part of the side of things. And then we moved to Texas and I don't need to say anything more about that. 
<laughs> it's UIL and it's very competitive driven in anything and everything that you do. And then I moved to Boone, Iowa that had no competition. So my first year there was a real struggle on um, philosophy, on how I approached band. Um, I really changed a lot when I was in Iowa. And I realized that I didn't have to have all the competition to have a successful band program. Um, we didn't compete. You, I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Just one more time for the people in back. <laughs> you don't to, yeah. You don't have to have competition to have a successful band program. I think if you provide opportunities and you challenge the kids, you'll have a successful band program. Um, we still did our state things. And I had, as Boone was small, and I would have seven to eight All-Staters every year. We just took our focus differently. Instead of using the time to focus on competition of marching, um, we used that time for jazz band or chamber ensembles or solo work. So we were able to focus on things that some competitive programs don't have time to do. And then I moved to Lawrence, Kansas, and after being a director of bands for a good 20 years, I'm now an assistant. So I've had to learn how to be an assistant. So I've hit a wall a few times because my philosophy, um, not, not the fact that like my philosophy is like to, to teach lifelong learners because my colleagues agree with that too, but their approach and how they teach um, is quite different than me, but I'm an assistant and my job is to support the views of the director band. So uh, I feel sometimes like my wings are clipped, um, but I find ways. So th that's my wall. That's a huge wall for me. And so I have to find ways with what I'm given to be um, not necessarily successful, but to find happiness for me, but to still challenge kids that I work with, even though I'm not in a setting that is always good for kids. And there's success and we have fun and there's good things that happen. Always good things. Find the good things. Uh, Destiny asks, what first year jitters did you have as a teacher and how did you overcome them? actually wrote this down. I said, not out of arrogance do I answer this question, but I came from a really strong high school program and I had great opportunities throughout high school and college. University of Illinois was in my backyard, so I grew up taking lessons um, there. So I had a lot of experience that some kids don't even have. Um, my biggest fear was failure because I have been part of so many successful programs. So I, I always fear failure. Um, I had great mentors. I asked lots of questions. I had supportive veteran colleagues and I did my homework. I made mistakes. I got back up. I brushed myself off and I kept moving forward. And I'm still, after 28 years, I'll make mistakes and it's okay because I'm going to learn from those mistakes. And I'm not afraid to ask questions. And I, and I, I lean on my colleagues. Like I don't approach this alone at all. Um, I think even when Ben, sorry, Dr. Harper was student teaching with me, he knew things that I didn't know. And I would ask him, like computers? I, pff, I can't do computers. <laughs> I've come a long way since Boone. Um, but the thing is, is like you guys are, you guys are coming with knowledge into our programs that is more updated than what we have. And so I, I think that I learned from my student teachers 
from what they bring to into the classroom and into the setting or new ideas or new approaches. If I'm not being collaborative, then, then I'm not doing my job as a teacher. So I always learned from my student teachers a lot. I never admitted it, but I did. That's a good answer. Really good answer. So Cheryl asks, with the latest COVID-19 events in the school system, how would you suggest integrating music with technology in the classroom? And have you given any thoughts to how to reintroduce music in this new virus era? For example, trying out instruments safely. That's my world that I'm living right now. Um, so it's just my life. I, I'm constantly learning. <laughs> Uh, last spring, I had two weeks to turn my classroom into a virtual setting. Talk about a learning curve. I learned how to use Google Classroom. I established a choice board, and I realized there was absolutely no technology program developed to have students play together while online. Many companies offered free trials throughout July. Yay for that. That really saved me because I was able to put those on choice boards. We utilized Sight Reading Factory, and one of my students takes private sound engineering lessons in Kansas City. So he agreed to try to manage our virtual band recording of the fight song. I accessed students' strengths to allow them opportunities to grow in the fine arts. I was not afraid to tell students that I'm just learning with them and that we will go about this but still have a positive band experience. Um, this year, our district has purchased Smart Music. So this week, I'm learning the ins and outs of that program. Um, and while there is, oh, I just believe if there's a will, there's a way to learn new things about our music community, ourselves, and our students. There are many teachers who have taught for many years that are just really lost <laughs> right now because we know what we know and we know how we were taught in school. Uh, I spent most of my summer researching, <laughs> like, following the studies, like playing with masks, um, you know, putting on the bell covers, which makes everyone sounds like they're playing through a pee bone, but yay, <laughs> you get to play. And what I'm finding is we, we were lucky because Keisha, um, the Kansas high school association, athletics association, um, voted to allow students or student activities and athletics to still continue even though we're virtual um so for marching band we're lucky that we get to still meet um but our our county just went into yellow it's a gauge so if you're in green you can be full on school you can do all your activities uh, yellow means that you're still you can do hybrid um but you're limited on numbers and your activities and red means you're going to be shut down. Our school district chose to do virtual for the first six weeks, but still let the acti activities and athletics happen. So what we're finding, we have all these rules the kids have to follow when they come, you know, you get your temperature check, you have to have the COVID questions answered. Um, and we have to wash our hands before we go on the field. So they've set stuff up and then we have to do small sectionals because Kansas is still in phase three. Um, so it's a learning curve, but we're finding the kids will follow these strict rules just to be together. Um, and that's what we're noticing. We could spend our time and like dig in and dissect the music, but the social aspect of the, their lives has just been upended. And so we give them time to social distance, socialize um, within their sectionals because we're finding that they really need that and they're just really wanting to get together. So they will do anything to play together. Um, so 
Cheryl, your question is really, really good, but I, I am not the professional in this. I can't give you like a solid answer because our day is changing almost daily. You know, um, on Wednesday, we were able to meet as a full band Thursday, the, you know, our community went to the age of yellow and they're like, you can only do sectionals. And if it gets to red, then we can't meet at all after school. So right now we're still allowed to at least meet after school, but once school starts, we're virtual except for Tuesday night rehearsals. So I'm still learning. I don't have the answers for that, but I am going to tell um, you to get on it. If you're not a Facebook person, which you're like probably laughing, everyone's like, oh, what, Facebook? We just Snapchat. Um, there are great organizations on Facebook that you should get on now. And they allow seniors to be on those just to watch, maybe not to make comments, but like there's a Facebook, the band director's Facebook group is great, but they also have one for COVID-19. There's also like teaching with smart music or teaching with Google classroom for music people. And those sites saved me (laughs) during the two weeks that I had to switch my classroom to virtual. So even after 28 years of teaching, some of the things that I learned in college, I can't use in a virtual classroom because you can't play together. And that's what everybody wants. And we've had to settle that we are not going to have performances this year. If we do have performances, we might have to do it without audiences. If we do it, we might have to social distance and cut the band in half. So it's a constant learning curve and it's constantly changing. Okay. So special guest, Dr. Matthew Smith from University of Kansas just stepped into the room. One of my big mentors also. So Dr. Smith is going to take a lightning round question. Thanks for being here, Dr. Smith. So glad you can. Happy to play, but (laughs) Dr. Harper. Okay. So Andrew asks, how would you address a school climate where the administration or staff does not embrace the arts? How can you grow a band in this setting? And how do you show that the arts have a place in school? We'll start with that because he's got more after that. You have to educate through performance and uh, try to do it in a way that's not going to, quote unquote, abuse your, abuse your students. So you have to show what benefit your program is to the, to the school and community, meaning get your parents on your side. Let them see what, uh, what is involved with a successful program, what are the benefits of a successful program, uh, how the successful program can integrate itself into the school community, like through uh, additional performances or obviously sporting events. That's, that's the number one thing. Community engagement, um, anything that you can do to promote your program. That's a big, big aspect of, of it is self-promotion. That's something that we often don't teach our students enough of as we prepare them to be instrumental music teachers, but uh, public relations, promotion, publicity, um, all of that is really important. So get key people on your side, be be it in the community, in the town, um, other administrators, other teachers, band parents, choir parents, um, all sorts of things. Uh, So start integrating things. I know some communities have trouble because they may not be um, wealthy communities or you might not have a lot of kids that, that, that uh, there might be socioeconomic issues. Find what you can do in the context of your community to uh, make things look like they're really successes. Um, provide opportunities for your students that maybe they haven't had before. I know that uh, one school where, where I first began my teaching career, 
the high school band built a tremendous reputation in the region for winning parade competitions. That was their thing. They would go and they would wipe up all the, and collect trophies and all this. As a result, it built a lot of spirit uh, in the community for the high school band. So little things that that maybe uh, you wouldn't think of in, in sometimes larger communities or communities where you're from. You have to kind of go to where things are if you're moving or taking a job into a community uh, that's different from where you grew up, so, so to speak. Find some opportunities. Also, uh, things like taking a busload of kids to uh, the big city and go to a concert or a matinee concert or something like that. Provide experiences to students that's, that are outside of what uh, they would usually be exposed to in their home community. They only know what they know. That's, that's, our that's job very, true. very true. Yeah, they do only know what they know. I think, I think if I were to summarize everything you're saying, I think we're, we're talking about two things. We're talking about building success or, or whatever success looks like for that community or that band program, but also, number two, building a culture which doesn't happen overnight. Neither of those things do. No, ab- absolutely. And, you know, you can do little things like when you when you first take over a job, um, do things like, hey, make sure that you're interviewed by the school paper or the local paper or the local news. What are some things that you're hoping to accomplish in that, in that town or community? But also with that comes making sure that you do your homework and you understand what are some of the things the community is known for, what are some of the traditions, and set set goals and set activities that are realistic. Like, don't go in there and say, we're going to become a, a championship band. Don't do that. That's, that's setting yourself and the students up for failure. Um, you can say, I, you know, I hope to broaden or expand, or I see some opportunities that maybe we haven't considered before, or I've seen things that, are, that have been successful elsewhere that I think would work in our community. Right. Yeah. Uh, the second part is, of his question is, is it possible to correlate music to other subjects to help gather support for the music program, uh, especially in a time of social distancing with many counties primarily for focusing on core academics? How would you recommend fusing music to support those subjects? Well, I think there's, there's lots of opportunities, especially networking in our own music community, for example, through Facebook and the band directors page and whatnot, I think you'll find lots of uh, resources for this nationally for opportunities. But of course, there's historical relationships we can draw on with music by all means. There's a correlation that you can make with music and visual art. Uh, Obviously with science, particularly the things we're related to now with COVID, um, you see a lot of band directors now paying attention to science. you know, you, you never thought that you would have to worry about uh, aerosols and displacement and things like that. But now we're we're taking a keen interest in those sort of things. So I think there's lots of opportunities, physics, for example, as well, um, that that you can draw upon. And honestly, a lot of academic teachers, I think, would welcome it if you said, hey, I'd like to find a way that we can maybe work together because you never know how that's going to impact students, but it's going to maybe turn on a light bulb with some of them about how they can actually relate music to an academic or another art form, uh, an academic subject and vice versa. Um, 
you know, there's been lots of music written, even band music written for historical events or social, uh, social awareness. And uh, so seek out those opportunities without a doubt. It's there. It's not necessarily a new idea. It's been going on for many, many years. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dr. Smith. Thanks for sneaking in as a unannounced guest in the most positive way that we could. Is everything going well for you at Kansas? It's going wonderfully. We just, we just want everyone to stay safe. Um, the time that we are together is magical and we are grateful for every minute we can be together in this, uh, COVID semester, I guess you could say. I'll tell you, I'm just happy to see my students again and to be rehearsing a band and and doing and making music together for whatever limited time we have. Exactly. Exactly. It teaches us not to take it for granted. That's right. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Dr. Harper. Welcome back, Mrs. Smith. Hi. Uh, Give me a second. I got to go pick up some socks that my dog was chewing on. I'll be right back. Okay, you're in trouble, but not that much trouble. Thank you and sorry. So Mitchell asks, what are some excellent ways to increase parent involvement in the band? A strong booster organization is one of my top priorities, but I have no idea how I would go about establishing one. Uh, In addition to this, I've seen parents attempt to overstep boundaries because they were in the band 20 years ago. Does this ever happen to you and how do you deal with it? You will get, not going to lie, every parent-teacher conference, a parent that will tell you their band story. Every time. They'll know more than you. And you know what, it's, you just sit there and you smile and you take it in because they are usually sharing a positive experience that they had in band. So while you're just going, you will have the longest conference lines, hands down. The kid will have an A in your class, but the parent will come, all the parents will come to you and want to talk about their time in band. And you just listen because we got in it because we love what we're doing, but that's just showing that somebody taught them how to be a lifelong appreciator of what you love to teach. So that's not going to go away. And I'd love to be able to tell you how to make it go away sometimes, but it's just not going to go away. Just, just take it. Cause after 28 years and lots of parent teacher conferences twice a year, I will always get band stories and I always have the longest lines and I'm always the first one that usually has a parent. And I'm always the last one to leave the building on parent teacher. Conference so it's okay. That means that they're enjoying your class. Their kids are enjoying your class. That's, that's a good thing. So you establish how your program is going to be. So how you are in that classroom, that's what the kids are going to go home and talk about. If you're providing a positive environment for those kids and they're feeling safe, and you're going to hear that a lot when you go out, providing a safe classroom. If they feel safe in your classroom where they can be themselves and express themselves, they're going to go and take that energy home. And that energy, parents love to hear the good about their kids. They like to hear what's happening in their lives. So whether you're seeing, a lot of times, I don't even know who the parents are because I never see them except for concerts. 
And then when I do see them, they talk to me and I'll have to say, who do you belong to? <laughs> because I don't see them that much. So there's not an association, but they're like, you establish it in the classroom and that's taken home. So I think as long as you keep that in the back of your brain, that what you do in the classroom and how you treat kids matters. Um, a great way for parent involvement is just to ask. Parents don't know. They don't know that they need, you need help handing out water. So you have a water committee. Parents love to help. They'll do, they're trained in elementary school through the sign of genius to help. All you have to do most of the time is ask. And that's what we are the worst about doing is asking. So when I came to Free State, we had a parent organization, but there was not, not a lot of involvement. And I'm like, well, why? And nobody can answer it. You just ask, ask them and be excited when they get there to help and write thank you notes. Thank them for the time they spent with your program. Thank them for the time that they helped your kids. That is huge. It's another communication aspect of your job. Um, it's just to communicate with the parents, thank the parents, and let them know that even though they were handing out water, it was truly appreciated because that's one less thing that you had to do and you could spend more time with the kids. So to build a program, you have to be positive. You have to treat the kids like you're they're your kids and you just need to ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. And parents have skills that you don't have mm -hmm. that, and they may be, there are several dads at Humboldt when I ask for help with a thing, either if they knew how to do it, they would do it. But if they didn't, they knew someone who did. Absolutely. And that was being, that was when I, when that first happened, that's when I first realized, well, I'm in this community now. I'm here and I'm a part of it and people are jumping in. Even, even parents who hadn't had kids in band for the longest time, but they could do something. Someone knew that they had a skill and sewing. they asked them. Huh? Sewing. Oh, sewing was a big one. Um, some carpentry stuff was a big one. Metal work for us for some stuff was a big one. We, you just have to ask because parents want to – just as much as you, they want their kids to have a good experience. And, and they show they care by being involved. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I also think this is a really great way to wrap up the interview because it, going back to the conferences discussion, uh, you'll be the first one there. You'll be the last one to leave. They will literally be tearing down the tables and the chairs around you. <laughs> And you're so one time, Mr. Hood, Mr. Hood was one of our custodians. He tore everything down and he brought out like that, that, what is it? The hard surface Zamboni cleaner thing uh, that they run down the hallways every night. And he worked around us. Oh, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Mr. Hood. I'll, we'll get out of here. No, no, no. That's okay. I'll stay until you leave. And then I'll come back and do your little six foot by three foot square before I leave. And, um, and they stay and they talk because they had a good experience or they remember something stuck with them and the parents want to show you they had a good experience. They want to show their sons and daughters they had a good experience and uh, how much that has stuck with them through life. And, and that is the cyclical nature of this. You get, when you get a student at conferences, who's now a parent and they have a kid in band 
Dr. Harper, we have kids in Boone when you're student teaching that they now have children starting. I know. Stop it. I have kids from Humboldt who have their own kids now who are, some of them are old enough. Oh, God. Oh and I got gosh. the message, Mrs. Smith, I hope that my daughter has the best time like I did with you. Yeah. So, Ooh. Yeah. I mean, Full circle. thank you. That that's a that's a tearjerker. Oh, thank you so much. Tearjerker tugs at your heartstrings a little bit, but then it's also like, I remember you when you were in high school. <laughs> and you were an absolute twerp. <laughs> you fought me. You were gonna quit, and you. I told you to stick it through, and you did. And now your daughter's playing trumpet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and she's gonna be in Allstate this year. Yeah, they, it, it's just such a you know. We affect people's lives more than uh, we believe or think that we do. And um, when you see that, when you have the experience to see that they are affecting their children's lives so that they are a part of this cool thing we call band, then you know you've done your job. You got to... We get to do an awesome thing. We teach the best kids in band, choir, orchestra, theater just the fine arts, we get the best kids, even Mm -hmm. the worst kids are good kids, you know? Mm -hmm. And the the biggest thing is that we just build relationships from the get-go and they will be lifelong learners. They really are. Even the, I, I see former students just struggling on Facebook, but there's these glimmers of like my, the daughter, is in band now. And I hope she has as good as time as I did. So at least I know that she had a rough, rough, rough upbringing. And there's that little glimmer of light. Like I want the same, you know, I want her to be happy too. So you, you will see kids with struggles that you have never had to deal with, but the one glimmer or the one thing that they get to do every day is a fine arts class. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty impactful. We got a big job to do, so be prepared. (laughs) Brace yourself. Here it comes. Brace yourself. Okay, well, thank you very much. I know this went way longer than we ever anticipated, but with you and I, is that really unexpected? No, no, it's not. What a great interview. Sometimes in your life, it's just good to sit and talk with those that you care about. We need to move on and we're going to wrap up the episode. I know it's been a really long episode, but since this class is a two credit class and we normally meet twice a week for an hour at a time, I didn't think that an extra long episode would be that out of bounds because really Mrs. Smith gave a lot of important information and she was sharing so much. To wrap up every episode, I'll give you your assignments for the coming week. First, you need to read the Jagao teaching pages 21 through 30, chapter 4, Snapshot of the Past, and chapter 5, Snapshot of the Future. While you were listening to this episode, I'm sure that not all of your questions were answered or that maybe you had additional questions that kind of popped into your head. Whatever came to mind, even if it's not related to student teaching, is fair game. So we're going to take three to five questions that you currently have or that came up during this episode or that you're going to think of now. And these questions can be directly or indirectly related to student teaching. 
kind of what's still left unanswered for you or what questions do you now have? You are going to schedule a Teams video chat with me within the next week and we will discuss your questions. I'll help you refine and clarify your questions before I put you in contact with Mr. Deshaun McGee, the director of bands at Wayne County High School in Jessup, Georgia, or I'll put you in contact with Mr. Johnny Hallman, the director of bands at Worth County High School. You will do an interview with one of them over the phone, on Zoom, in Microsoft Teams, in Google Meet, whatever you are most comfortable with. You are responsible for setting up the time, the medium, making sure that Mr. McGee or Mr. Hallman have the access to the link or that they have your phone number, etc. After the interview, you will write a brief summary of what you learned and submit it to me via email. Your summary should be approximately two to three pages in length. And again, keep a list of questions that came up during your interview that you now would like answered. What questions are now unanswered and what questions do you now have that you did not have before? These are important because uh, when you submit these questions, this is how we're going to open the next episode. This assignment in total is to be completed no later than 11.59 p.m. on Friday, September 11th. In Teams, I will include in the show notes all the details for this assignment. You can find the show notes by going into the Files section, and it will be in the Class Materials folder. And that is it. We made it to the end of Episode 1. I wish all of you a really great week, and please, please, please do not forget to get in contact if you have questions. I'll be looking for your email so that we can set up a Teams meeting this week with your questions so that you can get your interviews done. And I'm looking forward to speaking with each one of you and seeing how you're doing. Remember, we love you very much and go Blazers.